Thank you, Gary. That was an original piece. Very nice. A beautiful piece. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. So this morning, we're going to be kind of veering away from our Torah portions for a, you know, about several weeks, and not because I don't love what's going on in the book of Exodus, but we're going to be exploring the letters of John beginning this morning in a new sermon series. And I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One, because I think these are really awesome books, <laughs> but also I'm working on a book on these, so you all get to be my guinea pig <laughs> as, uh, uh, as we kind of explore these texts together. So John's three letters were written during a tumultuous time for the followers of Yeshua. It was at the end of the first century when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was raised, and the Jerusalem community and its leaders had to flee, scattered across the Roman Empire. We often like to think that the reason why the apostles went out abroad is because they were just so called to spreading the gospel message, which is true. <laughs> but they were also forced out. That somebody like John probably would have never left the Jerusalem community if they weren't forced to do so. And so there are those like Paul who were out there and it was their calling to clearly be out there planning new communities. But then there were others who felt called to their local community. And so when that community was basically destroyed, it put everything into chaos. As a result, coupled with also the eventual deaths of the earliest disciples and eyewitnesses, there was a lot of spiritual confusion going on when these letters were written. John wrote his three brief little letters to address conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns that were being taught and to bring a message of hope and encouragement. This is something we can obviously all relate to, right? Confusing times and a need for encouragement and hope. It is traditionally believed that the letters of John were, of course, written by Yeshua's disciple, John, the son of Zebedee who was one of the 12 shlichim, the emissaries or apostles. And it's first recorded to support his authorship within just 20 or 30 years after it was written by his disciple, by John's disciple, Polycarp. And he's the first one to attest that these letters were indeed written by his teacher, the apostle John himself. According to the Gospels, Yochanan ben Zavdai, or John the son of Zebedee, along with his brother Yaakov, James, were Jewish fishermen from the Galilee. Yeshua called them to be a part of his closest circles of Talmidim while they were out fishing one day with their father. John became close to Yeshua, and he's often, because of that, known as the Beloved. And after Yeshua's death and ascension became one of what we call the three pillars within the Jerusalem community. The three pillars were, of course, who? Who are the three pillars? Peter is one who's... This isn't a trick question, people. <laughs> this is stuff you should know. So it's Peter, James, and John, right? And James, of this kind of bait din, of this court within the Jerusalem council, within the Jerusalem council, which... Uh, included not only 
all of the apostles. It included also the elders and other leaders within the community. But within the Jerusalem council, there was also the highest court called the Beit Din, which consisted of the pillars. And of the pillars, there was Anasi, the head of the Jerusalem council, who was who? James, right? The brother of Yeshua. Paul refers to these three pillars in Galatians 2.9 as the acknowledged pillars of the assembly of Messiah. And it is to them that Paul is even submitted. So every time he goes out on one of his trips, what does he do? He comes back to Jerusalem. He always goes out from Jerusalem, then comes back to Jerusalem. And every time he comes back to Jerusalem, he meets with either all of the apostles, or in Galatians, it talks about that he went there one night, late in the evening, and he wasn't able to meet with all of the apostles, so he meets with, he says, the three pillars, right? Because they were the ones who at least he was able to give an accounting to, and they gave him the authority to then on his next mission. According to early tradition, around the time Jerusalem was overtaken by the Romans, and the temple was destroyed, which is around 70 CE, John fled with Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, to Ephesus, where he lived out the rest of his life. It is taught that he outlived the remaining disciples and that John was the only one of the 12 apostles, of the the remaining apostles, to die a natural death. All the others were martyred. And... He died, it's believed, around 100 CE, and he's believed to be buried in Ephesus. So why did he flee to Ephesus? Ephesus was an ancient Greek seaport on the western coast of modern Turkey. The city had a large Jewish population, which is likely why Paul also founded a community here and taught in Ephesus for three years, but that was before before John ever gets there. Paul also wrote his letter from Ephesus, so the city is also famous, of course, by being one of, the, one of the cities that are specifically mentioned in the book of Revelation, right? One of the seven congregations. John escapes the destruction of the temple along with Yeshua's mother, Miriam, to Ephesus. And it is there in Ephesus at the end of his life that he wrote his gospel and then the letters. John wrote his letters near the, as I mentioned, the end of his life And it's believed that he wrote these probably between 90 and 100 CE, and he died around 100. They're very late. They're some of the latest works that were included into the New Testament. So John's gospel and his letters were initially written to an audience within the same geographical area, probably in and around Ephesus, which was, of course, in the Roman province of Asia, which is today modern Turkey. Although John's initial audience were those who were directly affected by the pastoral issues related to in the letter, it is also likely that John intended, or at least assumed, that his writings would also circulate beyond just the congregations that they were meant for. Do you understand what I'm saying? And all, this happened with all of the letters. So even though the letters were written maybe to a particular congregation, they then circulated, because they had good stuff for everybody, they began to be circle, uh, circulated more widely. And John would have known that this would have been true because it's already been, for example, some of Paul's letters were already around for a couple of decades by the time he writes his. So he knew, yes, I'm addressing specific issues, but he's also writing to encourage the broader community at large. 
By the time of Yeshua, a lot of people forget that the majority of Jews already lived outside of Israel, much like today. So it was not unusual to have these various kinds of communities of Yeshua followers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Although Judea and its environs served as the Jewish homeland and Jerusalem its holy center, the majority of the population lived scattered around the Mediterranean and in Mesopotamia with a continually growing presence and expansion into Europe. Go Ashkenazim, right? <laughs> as Jews settled... As Jews settled in various communities and cities around the Roman Empire, they established communities which drew many Gentiles, and Ephesus was no different. Over time, these Gentiles represented a broad spectrum of affiliation. Some became, as we know, full proselytes, which, is con which are converts to Judaism, but others, more often than not, became God-fearers. God-fearers is a technical category that refers to Gentiles who took on various customs and observances, but without fully converting to Judaism. They were basically Messianic Gentiles, right? Um, like many of uh, our, our communities throughout the Messianic Jewish movement, God-fearers are mentioned many times throughout the New Testament writings. So what's the problem? Before we jump right into 1 John, what is the issue that John is dealing with? We, of course, know that John initially wrote his letters to address a split within the communities over conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns. His letters reflect also a tension between two distinct views regarding the person of Yeshua. The author of 1 John asserts that Yeshua has come in the flesh, whereas other people denied this. And it's been traditionally assumed that possibly the background to this is something called docetism. Docetism is from the Greek word dokeo, which means it only seemed like. So there were two, at the end of the, the first and into the second century, there were two radical views that were addressed by the early community regarding who Yeshua was. One group said, it wasn't a group, this was a major teaching, one group of teachings said Yeshua was, and this is what the Docetists believe, that he only seemed or appeared to be human, but he really wasn't. He was fully God. And so when we have descriptions of Yeshua sitting and eating with his disciples, or when he was hungry, or that's, it's all just language that isn't, it's not literal, right? It's figurative. Because Yeshua as God doesn't really need to eat, and he doesn't you know, feel pain and all of those kind of things. But then there's a separate view that said Yeshua is not divine, right? That he is fully just human. And anything that's a any like divine understanding of Yeshua was added later after the time of Yeshua, after the time of the disciples. Now, the, the early apostles and the early leaders had to address these issues, right? Because both of these are considered heresies, right? So the proper understanding is a balance of both that Yeshua is God incarnated in human flesh, right? So this is likely one of the issues that John is addressing. But he also wrote, as I mentioned, to send a message of hope and encouragement to people who are in the midst of really so much uncertainty. 
So let's jump into 1 John. If you have your scriptures with you, you can follow along. I'll read, but if not, you can bring your Bibles next week. So 1 John, the word which gives life, he existed from the beginning. We have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We have contemplated him and we have touched him with our hands. The life appeared and we have seen it. We are testifying to you and announcing it to you, eternal life. He was with the Father and he appeared to us. What we have seen and heard, we are now proclaiming to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. So this prologue, what's called the prologue, is uh, it's kind of a, a poetic opening and it's very similar and contains some of the same themes that John opens his gospel with, right? In the beginning was the word, the word, be, you know, right? The word was with God and word was God. He begins, the word gives life is what he opens with this. He existed from the beginning. Again, the, over and over again, you see these common themes echoed within the prologues. As we read through the opening verses, we quickly notice these similarities between the gospel and here in 1 John. It has largely been assumed that John wrote his letters and his gospel from within an entirely Hellenistic worldview and perspective. Some even argue that he drew upon language and imagery from Greek paganism and other wider influences in order to address his readers and for them to make sense of it. Although that argument has long been shattered, unfortunately, it is still common for people to read John with these shades of assumptions. However, there is now a growing call to read and interpret John's writings from within a Jewish framework and context. The more we understand about the Second Temple period, the more we are able to appreciate John's theology and its consistency with broader messianic developments within Judaism. This is especially true, for example, as more light is shed on John's use of the term logos throughout his writings, which is the word he uses in the prologue for the word, right? So when we, whenever you see this, the word, the word, the word, the Greek word is logos. Can everybody say that? Logos, right? Like Legos, but it's logos. <laughs> can tell I have a six-year-old six son, right? Rather than drawing on the often assumed Hellenistic use and imagery of this term, John's understanding is actually rooted in Jewish sources. According to one scholar, John Ronning, this is a quote, so bear with me, John's decision to call Yeshua the word, logos, was influenced by the Targums, the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew scriptures, many or most of which were prepared for recitation in the synagogue after the reading of the Hebrew text. In hundreds of cases in these Targums, where the Masoretic text, the Masoretic text is the common text that if you open a Jewish Bible today and you see the Hebrew, it's the Masoretic text. Um, where the Masoretic text refers to God, the corresponding Targum passage refers to the divine word. Considered against this background, calling Yeshua the word is a way of identifying him with the God of Israel. 
Understanding the Logos title is based on the Targums is crucial to understanding not only John's prologue, but the body of the gospel as well. For if we understand the Logos as a divine title, we can see that John's statements about the word present themes throughout the gospel. This is not only true of John's gospel, but of his letters as well. And we see that especially here in the prologue of 1 John. Daniel Boyarin at UC Berkeley likens John's prologue to early Midrash and proposes that it is conceivable to see the prologue together with its Logos doctrine as a Jewish text through and through rather than, as has often been read, a Hellenized corruption of Judaism, end quote. There's more I could say on this, but I don't want to bore all of you because <laughs> I'm a super Bible nerd and love and eat this stuff up. But for the sake of time and all of y'all's sanity, <laughs> but you get the idea, right? That even as I'm researching and doing all of this work on my book, the craziest thing is even people who think they have this understanding of uh, the Jewish framework and context figured out, over and over and over again, the conclusion that most scholars reach is that John is basically anti-Jewish, right? That all his term, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, as well as other ways that he refers to things are proof that he is against Judaism, that all of that stuff was done away with, and that now he is the presenter of a gospel that is pure of anything that was Judaic. The funny thing is anytime there's something positive that John says about Jewish people or Jewish life or all the times he rent, he's the only one who mentions all the various holidays, right? He mentions more holidays than any of the other Gospels. All the Gospels mention Passover, of course, but he mentions Sukkot, and it's the only reference for Hanukkah, and, you know, so on and so forth. So they kind of brush those aside. Oh, well, that was from an early layer of the text, you know, before he knew better, right? <laughs> it's, it's funny how people have to basically do somersaults in order to interpret this as anti-Jewish instead of understanding that this is a polemical discussion, right? That these are Jews talking to and about other Jews. So a lot of times when you have this kind of polemical discussion, sometimes you're really harsh in the way that you address those around you. But you're always the harshest with the people that you're the closest with, right? This is why we see the tensions between especially the Samaritans, for example, and the Jewish community, because the Samaritans are basically, for all intents and purposes, Jews. And their religion is Judaism. Archaeologically, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between a Samaritan synagogue and a Jewish synagogue. So what's the issue? What was the tension between the Samaritans and the Jewish community primarily? What was the issue? They were considered half-breeds, right? There's always been throughout history, whenever people come from mixed backgrounds, to shun them and to push them aside. So because the Samaritans were people who were mixed in with uh, the Jewish people that remained in the exiles, that they were treated differently than everybody else. Also, they sort of separated themselves out, that while the Jewish community was primarily in exile, they established their own temple, their own priesthood, and their own system. But it's fascinating. If you want to understand what Judaism was not like, if you want to understand what Judaism was like in the biblical period, you don't study the rabbis, you study the Samaritans. My wife's like, okay, move along. All right. <laughs> Well, let me just finish my point. <laughs> and the reason, the reason why you study the Samaritans is because 
they didn't evolve to the same degree that Judaism did, so they still practice sacrifices. So, in fact, many people from Israel go to the areas where the Samaritans live during Passover to watch them perform the Passover sacrifice, to watch the high priests do the whole rituals, because you see a world that we only read about in the Bible, right? So it's fascinating. And the Torah scrolls, I was mentioning to this, uh, Monique and I were discussing this last night. Again, this is a rabbit trail, but bear with me. Is what most of us think of as Hebrew, this right here. The language is Hebrew, but the letters are what? It's not Hebrew. <laughs> for, for more than 2,000 years, we've transliterated Hebrew. That from the Babylonian exile, we came back with our Hebrew, but we started writing it with Aramaic letters. So the Samaritans still use the Hebrew font, what scholars now call Paleo-Hebrew. And so when you read a Torah scroll, a Samaritan Torah scroll, or a Siddur, a prayer book of Samaritans, it's still in Paleo-Hebrew, not in the Aramaic font, because they didn't go into exile, right? So they stayed, and they just kept continuing with the Hebrew that they were familiar with. All right, moving on. <laughs> you should hear the comments I'm getting from my wife up here. She's like, that was more than a rabbit trail. <laughs> All right, so in the opening prologue, there's so much we could talk about, but I'll just mention one more thing. In the opening prologue here of 1 John, the author also confronts any false teachers by appealing to his authority and to apostolic authority in general as an apostle, as a direct eyewitness who personally knew Yeshua and to whom authority was given, right? When you read this, the reason why it has authority, according to the author, and this is intentional, is he's saying, we have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We have touched him with our hands. This isn't um, mystical or theoretical. What he's doing is saying, and he'll go on to say this, is that what I'm presenting to you is exactly what we, the apostles, experienced, right? We touched him. We filled him with our hands. And so if this is true, then you can trust that why my message and what I'm explaining to you is also true. As Karen Jobes confirms, these letters insist that this apostolic testimony surpasses any reinterpretation of Yeshua by those who were not commissioned by him or who were far removed from personal knowledge of him. If we go on, we read, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We, meaning he's kind of representing the apostolic authority, are writing to you so that our joy may be complete, meaning we're about to die and the rest of the apostles are already dead. And so we're writing to you so that our joy may be complete, knowing that we have shared with you the proper way of understanding your faith. And this is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him, none. If we claim to have fellowship with him, while we are walking in darkness, we are lying and not living the truth. But if we are walking in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of his son Yeshua purifies us from all sin. 
You see over and over again throughout John's writing the use of this dualism of light and darkness, which we know about from the Dead Sea Scrolls and also from the Jewish world in which this emerges. This was a common idea to understand light as, rep re as representing God, right? And darkness as representing the things not of this, you know, of the world of, of God, of sin, of uh, uh, darkness in general. So then he goes on to conclude the first chapter. Well, for him, they weren't chapters, but for us, this section. Remember, when the Bible was written, there were no verse and chapter breaks, so they just continued with their thoughts. But he does switch gears here just a tiny bit. He ends with that last verse with talking about purifies us from all sin. And then now we'll transition to talking about sin. If we claim not to have sin, because this was a common teaching, right? That we have been forgiven. And you hear slight variations of this teaching even today, right? Well, we've been forgiven. And so it's okay. You know, if you, it's okay if you fall, you know, God will forgive you. That's true, Right? we got to be careful about cheap grace. That our faith in Yeshua is not an excuse to just do whatever we want. And you know what? God will forgive me. It's okay. I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit, but this is, this is the way people often think these days. If we claim not to have sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we acknowledge our sins, then since he is trustworthy and just, he will forgive them and purify us from all our wrongdoing. This is one of the reasons why Yom Kippur is still important. Is that we need to have set times where we publicly confess and deal with the stuff that through the rest of the year we don't want to deal with. Of course, we can repent or ask God for forgiveness any day of the year but we don't really do it. <laughs> Unless there's something that so happens to force us to be a little bit guilty, there might be that one thing that we say, God, you know what, I'm really sorry for that. And all the things that uh, was so beautifully said during the drosh, right? Which we all do. God, if you'll forgive me or if you'll just deal with this one thing, I promise I'll fill in the blank. <laughs> Alex and I were kind of nudging, elbowing each other during that saying, that's so true, that we all do it, Right? If we acknowledge our sins, then since he is trustworthy and just, he will forgive them and purify us from all wrongdoing. If we claim we have not been sinning, we are, not, are, we are making him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Doesn't mean that we all don't fall short, but we need to constantly be a work in progress so that the life that we're living at the end of our life is not the same as it was at the beginning. This is why you see the language without the New Testament where it talks about salvation as not a one-time prayer, but as a process. Work out your salvation through fear and trembling, it says. It also says run the race so that when you get to, it doesn't say the starting line, <laughs> it says when you get to the finish line, you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Our submission with that prayer of proclamation of our faith is only the beginning of the process. We're judged by the process. So if we claim we have not been sinning, we are making him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
His word is what? Representation of God himself. Yeshua himself is not in us and is really not a part of our lives. In these short letters, John is encouraging our our faith to really take hold of what was presented to us. And that even though he means it in the literal sense that we have seen him, we have beheld him, we have touched him, he's also encouraging that that's not too far off from us. Because blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. He's giving us hope that despite all the difficulties that are going on around us, that we can hope and trust that redemption will come. That a day will happen when not only evil will be sorted out, but that we will rule and reign along with Messiah in the heavenly realms. He encourages us to do something that we all struggle with, which is avoiding sin. So we need to be reminded and prodded, which is what John is doing here, to do your best to walk in a way that is noble and upright. And my favorite of all, walk in the light as he is in the light. To live it out. It's not just what you believe, it's what you do. James talks about, you ask me about my faith, I'll show you my faith by what I do, right? And it's also important to have a proper understanding of who the Messiah is, which is one of the big issues that John is dealing with here to help us understand both the humanity and the deity of our Messiah. Because there are even, you know, fringe groups within the Messianic movement who teach that Yeshua is the Messiah, but he's not God. That's heretical. So I pray that we and our own face would really be encouraged by John these little letters, letters kind of brushed off to the back of the book often get ignored. And they have some good stuff that gets also quoted quite a bit. But as we really delve with John's writings over the next few weeks, I want us to wrestle with it, to chew on it. And I hope that you'll go home during the week and read through these on your own. So as we discuss them, you're right there with me kind of wrestling with what, what is going on here. Rabono Shalolam, master of the universe. I pray that you would help us to walk in the light. That just as you are light and there is no darkness in you, that more and more and more we would be reflections of you. That more of your light would shine and less darkness. Because we are beacons of hope. We're called to be lights, a light to the nations of your glory, of your purpose, of your redemption. To be your partners in bringing redemption into the world. So in order to do that, God, we not only need to get ourselves in order but we need to draw closer to you and closer to one another, which will be another theme that we'll see over and over again as we read through John. This emphasis on love 
and covenant fidelity. I pray that those things, those values would be really absorbed by us in our own living so that we can serve the living God together. Bless us, our Father, all of us as one, but or panecha with the light of your countenance. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Yeshua, Messiah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Please rise.